All right, we are continuing our series in First Peter this morning. We're going to be in First Peter chapter one. I mean, First Peter chapter two, verses thirteen through twenty-five today. Uh, we're calling this submissive sojourners, and uh, and this is a, a tough passage to uh, to preach to Americans right now, um, because because American what Peter's going to call us to in the very first. Uh, sentence is to be subject to every human institution, essentially be, be subject to governing authorities, be, be submissive to those who are in authority over you. Um, and and, and is it, it's not a time where a lot of people feel like being submissive to authorities, right? We've seen uh, all kinds of protests against the police. I mean, pe- people that are just uh, mad at law enforcement, directly opposing law enforcement and, and defying them and uh, and, and disrespecting them um, regularly. And, then, and, and so I know probably most of you right now are going like, well, good, he's not talking about me. I feel I give great respect to the police. But almost everybody who, who doesn't feel that way about the police, who is, is, is very respectful of and, and, and submissive to law enforcement, uh, does not feel that way about our elected officials, right? about our elected authorities, those people we are not respectful to, we are not, not submitting to, not wanting to listen to, uh, right? We're in rebellion against there. So you almost have everybody in America having some problem with some version of our governing authorities. Uh, and yet that's what Peter's going to call us to here. And I think one of the ways that we can, one of the ways that we can understand this better is, uh, is to consider what Peter calls us to as elect exiles of the dispersion, right? He calls us sojourners, people who are living here temporarily, people who are not here, for whom this is not our home. And, and I don't know how many of you have traveled abroad, and if you have, how you interact with the authorities when you are abroad, when you're in a country that's not your own. Um, but it's different, Right? There's a different level of, uh, of respect and fear and, and just not wanting, to, not wanting to get in trouble with them. Right? You feel much better about getting in trouble with the authorities that you're comfortable with, that you understand, you know that you speak the same language. I had this experience one time when we were in um, uh, one, one of our Mexico mission trips many years ago. Um, one, uh, one of our uh, students had a problem with her eye. She wasn't sure, like her contact, where it went, and it was all scratched up, and, and she was worried about her, they were, we were worried about her eye. And so we decided, her, her father was actually on the trip, Jeff Prather, uh, and, and, and we decided we should probably take her to the hospital. And since we're so close to the border, we're going to take her to the hospital across, across the border. And so we leave at like midnight to go drive her across the border to the hospital. Um, and, and I'm driving through, you know, Tijuana, and I come under, under this bridge, like coming like down a hill under this bridge, and as I come under the bridge, I see a, a stoplight, like a, a, a traffic light, and it's yellow, and so I'm like, okay, good, I make, make, better make sure I make it through this intersection before it, it turns red. Um, and, and then it flashes yellow. As I'm driving through, I realize it's flashing yellow. I thought, I've never seen that before. I don't know what that, maybe it's on the fritz. I don't know what's going on. Uh, and, but it's just flashing yellow on and off like that. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. Uh, and then I saw some uh, other flashing lights. <laughs> and they were in my rearview mirror. 
And so I pull over. Again, it's like midnight in Mexico. And, and I'm, I, I mean, I am on my absolute best behavior. I want to make sure that I'm as respectful as I possibly be to this officer. I don't want to get in trouble. Luckily, Jeff Prather was with me, and he, sp- he speaks Spanish. And so he talked us out of it. But apparently in Mexico, if it's flashing yellow, it means to treat that intersection like stop signs, like a four-way stop. And so I had no idea, but that's what it was. And he initially wanted to like, you know, they, they make you go back to the station with them and pay a fine and, and probably a bribe. You know, you have to do a whole thing. But Jeff was able to just talk us out of it and he let us go. But that feeling, I think, is something that that is, is important. And I know you probably feel it when you, if you've gone to other countries and you have to go through customs or anything like that. I mean, you're just absolute best behavior. You don't want to get in trouble in this foreign country. And that's essentially what Peter is calling us to here. He's saying, you are sojourners. You are exiles. You need to, to treat the, the human institutions, the governing authorities with respect while you are living here. And, and like I said, that's a difficult message to preach in America right now to American Christians because it's just not where our culture is at. But it's important that we don't, we don't conform to our culture, but that we live the way Jesus calls us to live and the way the scripture calls us to live. And, and while it's a difficult message to, for us to preach here in our culture today, it was just as difficult for Peter when he was writing it. That's something I found comfort in this week when I was thinking about how I was going to present this, this passage, is that for Peter to write this at his time was very difficult because there was a lot of desire for rebellion, for revolution. People were being locked up and executed for, be, for it being insurrectionists regularly. That's essentially what Jesus was crucified for, right? Treason. They were treating him like he was trying to start an insurrection against the Roman government. That's why he was crucified. He was not the only one that that happened to. That's, that's actually what Barabbas, the guy that was released instead of him, that's what he was in prison for. And this was something that the Roman government was regularly having to squash these rebellions, having to squash these insurrections that were pop- cropping up all the time. And so Peter is urging uh, his churches not to join in with these movements, right? And essentially is what he's doing in this passage. But let's dive into it and see what this has for us today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to public punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So we are called to submit to authority. We're called to submit to every human institution. These authorities, in fact, to say, have been put in place by God. I mean, Peter says that here in this passage, that that it's the will of God that these things happen. Paul is a little even more explicit about it in Romans 13, where he tells us, be, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Right there, Paul says that these authorities have been put in place by God. Now, 
we might not understand why that is all the time, right? Sometimes we might can question that and go, like, why would God put this person in authority here? Why would he do that? But God, I mean, read the Old Testament. God is raising up these countries and authorities all the time who are not following him, but for his own purposes. So we don't ever know. It's not necessarily a good purpose. Sometimes it's for punishment. But here again, he says they exist. They've been instituted by God. In Titus 3.1, he reiterates this where he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So we talked about this last week, and this is another instance where we might find something in scripture that we don't particularly like, or we're not particularly glad that it's in there. It doesn't resonate with us. It doesn't fill us with joy. It makes us a little uncomfortable that this is in here at all. But again, we cannot pick and choose which of God's commands we're going to obey. We cannot pick and choose which truths from Scripture we are going to accept. Because again, if any Christian throughout history had reason to rebel against the authorities of their day, it was Peter and Paul. They were regularly arrested and imprisoned and beaten for preaching the gospel. So that's a question then that we lead us to. If they did that, if they broke the law, when can we rebel? When are the situations in which we are allowed as Christians to break the law? Well, in their instance, they had been commanded to preach the gospel. And so that command trumps the human authorities' command not to preach the gospel, right? That, that they couldn't do that. They had to do it because God told them to do it. But there are so few examples of things like that in, in our world today where we are commanded by God to do something that breaks a human law. Now, there may be more coming, but that's what's, uh, it's pretty rare. But I also want you to notice that the apostles, even as they did that, still submitted to the punishments meted out for their proselytizing. They didn't resist being thrown in prison. They didn't resist uh, facing being drugged before uh, courts. They, they went wherever, was, wherever the authorities told them to do. They, they submitted to those punishments. This call makes a lot more sense, again, when we connect it to our status as elect exiles of the dispersion. If we see ourselves as exiles, we see this world as not our home, we recognize that these institutions have no real authority in, com in comparison to the kingdom of God, and yet we ought to submit to them. This is why he calls us to live as people who are free. He tells us, live as people who are free. We are truly free because of what Jesus has done to us. We are done for us. We're free to worship, free to pray, free to proclaim the gospel, free to do good because Jesus has set us free. And so regardless of what we are being told we have to do, we are always free to do those things. We're not obligated to do anything. We don't have to do anything because Jesus has already done everything. And that's why he tells us that we are to submit for the Lord's sake. If you look at that, that first verse we read, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's because our submission is beneficial to the kingdom of God, to the mission that God has sent us on. That's why he says, This is the will of God that we do good, that our good deeds should silence those who would seek to persecute us. And I want you to notice these last four 
these kind of four statements that he puts in uh, together in sequence here in verse 17. First, he says, honor everyone. And what he's essentially saying there is that we can show honor to anyone who seeks it, whether we legitimately think they deserve it or not. We can show respect. We can show honor to people even when they don't deserve it because our status is not found in our position over anyone else. Right? I want you to think, think about a schoolyard bully. Right? We think about schoolyard bullies. Why do they do it? Why do people bully? Why do kids bully other little kids? It's because they don't feel good. Right? They don't feel good enough. They don't feel adequate. They aren't properly loved. And so they can feel bigger by making someone else feel small. They can feel good by making someone else feel bad. Right? That's the connection that, that we have there. We see that. And it's very blatant when we see it on the schoolyard. Or when we see it on the playground, it's very blatant that that kid is trying to make himself feel better by making this kid feel bad. But the, the secret that, that we don't really talk about is that that doesn't stop happening when we get older. Adults do the same thing. Adults do the exact same thing, make people feel bad to make themselves feel good, to break people down in order to build themselves up. We're just a little more sophisticated about it. Right? We don't use name calling and those kind of things necessarily, but, but people do it all the time. And if you're, if you're very sophisticated, then you don't do it to anybody's face. Right? You and your friends get together and talk about other groups of people who are worse than you. To make you now it's a group activity. Now you all are feeling better, right? By dishonoring some other group of people. But as Christians, we don't need to do that because our status, our, self, our esteem, our pride, all of the things come from him, right? Come from Jesus. If we find our identity in him, find our righteousness in him, then we can show honor to other people. It doesn't take anything away from us because we are filled with him. So we can honor everyone. He also tells us to love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. And here he's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He's saying, find love, find solace, find community, find unity, find all of the things that you need here in the, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church. Find, hope, find these things with one another, that as you suffer these things, as you suffer, as you make your way as sojourners and exiles in the world, we can find support with one another by loving one another well. And then he pairs these last two comments, fear God and honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. And he's saying these speak together because they're connected, right? He's saying, have a fear of God, have a healthy respect of God, show him the reverence that he is due. And that is connected to then honoring the emperor, which uh, can stand in for really any head of state, right? And he says that honor the emperor as supreme. He's saying essentially, honor, honor that, that person who is the ultimately in charge. So in our context, that would be like the president, he says, honor the emperor. And he says, these things are connected. And they're connected kind of in the same way when he talks about, um, when he talks about uh, the greatest commandment. Right? Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that, when he says the second is like it, he's really saying that it flows from it. 
because those two things are connected. Loving God and loving people are connected because if we love God well, we'll love what he loves and what he loves are people. So those two ideas are connected that how well we love God influences how we love people. Similarly, how we feel about God, the respect and honor we feel to God, the fear that we show him, the reverence that we show him, is directly connected to then how we interact with human authorities. So fearing God is related to honoring the emperor. And again, that, that's a, a, a kind of shocking command to find in scripture. We might not realize that this command is in scripture to honor the head of state, but it is. It's in scripture. It's in the New Testament to honor the head of state, honor the emperor. It's not something that we do particularly well. It's not something that we did particularly well with the last president. We saw a lot of disrespect for the last president, and we continue to see it played out today, a lot of disrespect for the current president. And unfortunately, a lot of that coming from believers. I see it. I've seen it from believers. Okay, and so I'll, I'll say one thing that you might not understand this reference. If you don't, I'm so happy. Um, but for those of you who do, I want to say this straight out because this is something that just has to stop. No Christian, no believer, no one who claims Jesus as their Lord and Savior should be saying, let's go, Brandon. Should not. Disrespectful, inappropriate. We have to stop mimicking the culture. We cannot look like the world. And that's what we're doing when we say that. We'll look next here at verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, so we need to talk a little bit here in this passage about uh, servants and slaves in context, because this is a, a, a tricky passage, historically uh, troubled passage. This is a passage that was used throughout history to justify uh, the existence of slavery, but it doesn't, right? This passage does not justify or support slavery existing as an institution. It simply is instructing us how to live in a world where slavery and servanthood exist. And particularly here for, for these people, uh, Peter is instructing them how, as Christians, as Christian slaves or servants, how to, how to live out their lives of slavery, that if they're living in that status, how do they continue to live as Christians in that, in that status, uh, as being slaves in that institution? But this passage does not, by any means, forbid someone from seeking to abolish slavery as an institution. <coughs> there are certainly other scriptural passages that would compel us to abolish slavery. Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah rebukes Israel for holding slaves. Paul makes the case in Galatians 3.28 that, uh, that everyone is equal, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And after reading that, if, as a believer, you could continue to hold slaves. I don't understand how you could do that. Scripture has a lot to tell us, and this is an example of how to interact, how to live in a world where sin exists. But that instruction does not validate the sin itself. All right, so just because Scripture is telling us how to live within the context of sin and the context of a broken world doesn't validate or support that brokenness. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Now, there's a lot of people who have said throughout, uh, a lot of Bible scholars who, when reading this passage and talking about this passage in general, because depending on your uh, translation, it may say, servants, be subject to your masters, or it might say, slaves, be subject to your masters. The ESV has chosen to use servants because they make this argument that, uh, that slavery in Peter's day was uh, more like servanthood. And, there were, and it's certainly true that there were people who would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off debts, but that would then come to an end. And so there was uh, a lot more structure around it than, than literally like just taking people and holding them captive and making them slaves. But for our context... What does this look like and what does this say to us? How do, how do, what do we get out of this passage? If there, there are no slaves in this room, we, you know, we may have something to say and talk about our history of slavery in, in America, but, but for that doesn't really impact how we live today. So what does this passage tell us? And I really think it is appropriate that we could, we could translate this and, and for ourselves and apply it as employees be subject to your bosses. Right, that's essentially what, and, and and I know some of you probably making the joke yourself already of like, well, that fits for me because I do I feel like a slave with my boss. Well, I tell you, you know, but but regardless, that's essentially what he's saying. These are people that are in authority over you in a, a workplace situation. Employees be subject to your bosses. Now, a lot has been made about how servitude in that day looked more like modern employment than slavery and the Americas in our history. There's a lot of people that have made that case, but I think that there's, Peter goes a step beyond that, right? Because he says something surprising here where he says um, that we should be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He tells them that they need to be be subject and be submissive to their masters, even when they are unjust, even when they are not good, not kind to them. And what he's essentially saying is our behavior, what we do is not determined by how the people who are in authority over us are treating us. Whether they are doing a good job and whether they are being kind and generous and uh, and, and treating us well, that doesn't, is not a stipulation on how we behave. That we are to submit to them anyway. That we're to show them respect anyway, whether they are good and gentle or whether they are unjust. And he also makes this caveat that, that suffering for sin doesn't count. Uh, this is a, it's an obvious caveat, but it's important that we, that we notice this, that suffering because we are being punished for doing wrong is not the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about. They're saying, if, you, if you're doing good and you suffer, that's credit to you. If you're sinning and you suffer, that's not, that doesn't, that's not persecution, right? Not everything that happens to a Christian is persecution, right? If you get uh, busted 
um, you know, embezzling funds from, from your workplace and you get locked up in prison, you can't call me up and be like, can you believe they're persecuting me? Like, no, you're a criminal. You just got locked up. You're, you're also, you're still saved. You can still be a Christian, but this isn't that. This isn't persecution. That's the point Peter's making here. But the bigger question that we have to consider is how can we willingly suffer injustice from authorities? How? Peter's calling us to something so high here. He's saying, with whatever human institution you're a part of, whatever authorities are over you, whether they're the government, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's your boss, whoever is in charge over you, you should be respectful and submissive. Be subject to them. Regardless of how good of a job they're doing, you need to do that. How could we do that? How can he ask us to do that? That's a high calling. That's a difficult passage for us to read and to accept and to try to uh, you know, conform to. So how can we willingly suffer injustice from authorities? It's because we have an example. We'll look lastly here at verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We've been called to suffer because Christ suffered for us. Because Christ suffered for us, we are called to suffer. He is our example. We're to follow in his footsteps. Following Jesus always sounds like a good idea until you really consider where he went and how he lived. This is something that, that we see in, in Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 through 20, a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like a great idea. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is not telling him no. He's just wanted to make sure this guy's clear on where they're going. Because during Jesus' time of his ministry, he was homeless. He lived on the road. They slept rough. He didn't have a cushy life. He didn't live a cushy life during his ministry. He lived on the road and often lived on the run. He trusted in the Lord for his daily sustenance. He didn't have a pantry full of food. He didn't have a refrigerator. They, I mean, there's... I put the reference here, but the time that Jesus is walking and sees the fig tree and he's mad that there's no fruit on the fig tree and so he curses it. Like that's a, uh, a metaphor for something else, right? That's a lesson that he's teaching the disciples about something else, about being fruitful. But it's also evidence that he was hoping to get some food. He's just walking on the road hoping that, please, that there'd be some figs on here. There's that passage where Again, it's used for a greater context, but the disciples are just picking grain as they're walking on the Sabbath. And, and then they get rebuked by the people, by, by the, uh, the Pharisees for doing that. But again, 
And, and so there's a bigger lesson there about that he teaches us about he's the Lord of the Sabbath and all that. But again, it's an example of they're hungry. <laughs> they're like, we better eat while we can. Here's some grain on the side of the road. Let's just eat it. He actually trusted in the Lord for his daily sustenance. And then in the end, all of his friends betrayed him. All of them abandoned him. They all left him to be arrested by the Roman government, to be persecuted by his own people, the Sanhedrin, and the Roman government in, 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 together arrested him, beat him, and crucified him. That's the guy you're following. That's the guy that we're following. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we ought to consider where he's going, how he lived, and realize that if we're following him, we're going to go through those same things. It's worth it, but Jesus doesn't lead us down an easy road. He doesn't, he doesn't lead us to easy, an easy life. Peter considers here how Jesus responded to his own persecution, and he tells us he committed no sin. He did not deceive. He did not revile in return. This is when people talked bad about him, when they reviled him, when they called him names. He didn't do it in return. He didn't answer back in that way. He didn't insult back. He didn't revile in return. When he was suffering, he didn't threaten them. Instead, it says that he continued entrusting himself to the one who, who judges justly, that Jesus trusted in God the Father through all that he suffered. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, that God judges justly. He's the supreme authority, and Jesus entrusted himself in him, and that's what we are to do. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes God rescued Jesus. Right? We have an example of Luke chapter 4, 29 through 30. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That's a miraculous escape. Right? God provides that to Jesus in this instance, but not every time. The disciples also, sometimes they're rescued, right? The, when, once they become apostles in Acts chapter 12 and 16, they have these two exciting prison breaks in which God opens the prisons for them, sets them free, right? He, he rescues them. But again, not all the time. He doesn't always rescue his people. Jesus was beaten and crucified. Paul was beaten and suffered on multiple occasions, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he, he lists these things. He's actually kind of defending himself uh, as an apostle and, and saying like, hey, here's, here's my proof that I'm doing what God wants me to do. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is Paul 
proving that he has God's favor, that he's doing what God wants him to do. And yet today, we have so many Christian leaders who try to say, like, well, look at how prosperous I am. God is certainly blessing me. When Paul's asked to prove himself, he points to his suffering. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Nearly all of the apostles were martyred. Many missionaries throughout history have suffered and lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. This is what we are called to do because he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus died for us. We ought to live for him. And part of living for him is being willing to submit to the earthly authorities. Being willing to sojourn here, to live here as exiles. Recognizing that it's only a temporary submission anyway. Because in the end, Jesus will return as the King of kings and Lord of lords to rule and reign forever and ever. And we will never have to submit to anyone else. Because he will be the supreme and only authority. We'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, recognize that authority is established by God. Something that I, I know I personally have to remind myself of from time to time when I'm frustrated with the state of the world and the people that are in charge. Recognize that God has put these people in place. Whether I understand it or not, whether it's for good or not, it is part of his plan. And two, to pray earnestly for those in authority. Something that we're called to do. Something that, we're, that, that we, we, we should be doing. We'd be praying for God to intervene. And third, being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Recognizing that that's the ultimate goal, is, is the mission that God has put us on. We're praying for that above all else and suffering for it when asked. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, then we'll take communion together, and then we'll sing one final song. Uh, after that, there will be a prayer team. They'll be available right here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love to pray with you. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather in your name, that we can worship, and be encouraged by one another. And that we can be challenged by your word, God. I thank you that there are, um, that there are things in, in your word that are difficult for me. That, that you have to work on me with. That I can continue to grow and become more like Jesus. And I pray that you would work in each one of us this week. That we might become more and more like Jesus. That we might live for you because you died for us. I pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.